0: Hi, my name is Sophia Chiani, and I am going to be hosting the new Fashion Initiative podcast. And so today we have Joshua Catcher, and he is the founder of Brave Gentleman, the first vegan ethically made menswear fashion brand. So hi, Joshua, I'm so excited to talk to you today. Hello,
1: thank you for having me.
0: Of course. So can you talk to us about what got you interested in sustainability? And why did you decide to pursue a career in sustainability?
1: Well, I started writing about sustainable menswear in 2008 when I launched the discerning Brood, And at the time it was the first men's lifestyle website dedicated to vegan and sustainable fashion and lifestyle. And um, that is really what got me very interested. The more that I wrote about fashion and the more that I wrote about things that I personally wanted, the more I realized how complex and ingrained fashion was in our lives. I think I was someone who always kind of saw fashion in a way that I think is pretty popular, which is perceiving it as something that's just about fun and frivolity and ultimately not that important. And the more that I wrote about it, I realized how much fashion really is this global industrial complex that affects billions of people and billions of animals and ecosystems everywhere and I don't think I could have got a better education about what happens in the fashion system than just trying to figure out solutions for my own personal standards.
0: Yeah that absolutely makes sense. I mean so can you tell us more about your different companies, your different ventures and how you first started them?
1: Yes. So I launched my brand, Brave Gentleman, in 2010, and that emerged from The Discerning Brood, which was my blog. And as I was writing more and more about fashion, there I realized there were things that I wanted that didn't exist. And so I decided to try to make them. And <clears throat> we launched in 2010, and then the brand has grown over the last decade. And we mostly focus on footwear, but we do also suiting and um, some accessories like belts and wallets and bags. We have big plans for the next year. And other than that, I've been a professor and lecturer at universities like Parsons, and a guest speaker um, at NYU and FIT, and I've traveled internationally, mostly speaking about um, the impacts of the fashion industry on non-human animals and the environment. but I also wrote a book on the topic called Fashion Animals, and that was released last year. Um, it is the only book specifically about what happens to animals and what has happened to animals in the fashion industry, whether it's their, the use of animals as images and advertising, whether it's what happens to animals um, on farms or in the wild who are trapped for their skins and their feathers and their hairs to be used in fashion. Um, It's a topic that is often overlooked. Um, So it's something that really needed more thorough research and investigation. And I plan to do much more with that topic as more and more research emerges.
0: Wow, that's really interesting. So I know that COVID-19 has changed a lot of the ways that we go about our life. So would you say that your role within your companies has changed? Like, Can you walk us through what you do every day? What does your normal routine look like?
1: Yes, uh, being, uh, being at home and working from home is not something that I'm that unfamiliar with. Although being able to run out to multiple meetings or go to the factory or ship customer orders, that, a lot of that has changed. I've had to be much more careful about how frequently and in what uh, in what capacity I can ship customer orders and also how to work best with uh, with factories that I use um, I, I use a lot of factories in New York City and I use a factory in Brazil and um, there are definite safety um, concerns for the workers and um, it slowed things down. And maybe that's a good thing. I think the entire industry slowed down.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really nice optimistic view. And so kind of pivoting. So going back to like your brave gentleman and um, your blog. So would you say that you have always been focused on sustainability and have your ventures always been focused on sustainability? Or was it something that you pivoted to?
1: Um, I became an environmental activist, I guess, when I was in high school. And I it was something that I realized before I really cared about what was happening to animals per se. Um, I in the '90s, uh, in the 1990s, I was in high school, and the big topic was the you know the rainforest and what was happening to the rainforest. And we've seen that kind of reemerge in the last couple of years as the as the livestock industry is completely decimating the rainforest. And that's tied directly to the leather industry. And I think a lot of people don't realize that leather um, and livestock grazing in general are the single most widespread cause of species extinction and species endangerment globally. And um, that's something that we don't talk a lot about in circularity when we talk about fashion. We don't talk about graze land as part of the circularity equation. And we need to. We kind of take graze land for granted. We see it as sort of this natural thing that's just there and it's not, it's a choice. Uh isn't you know is, is intentionally created for industries like the wool industry and like the leather industry. So that's something that came from an environmental standpoint and continues continues to evolve as a conversation. Um so uh, yeah I, I became an environmentalist out of a concern for what was happening to the rainforest and it and it really sparked a bunch of questions in my mind about systems in general. As a 15-year-old who asked, you know, why is my hamburger coming from cattle that are grazing in the rainforest? That kind of blew my mind at the time. It really brought everything into, into question. Why, you know, you have this idea of this happy little farm with a red barn and a few animals lazing about these rolling green fields and, and it's it's what you see on the side of the meat truck or on the side of the dairy truck this mythology that we tell ourselves about where food is coming and the same thing happens in fashion so my my pursuit of of trying to figure out what was happening in the food industry Led naturally to my concern for what was happening in the fashion.
0: and so how have you been trying to mitigate these concerns? So like what does your brand do in regards to sustainability and accountability?
1: My brand is not something that's really operating at scale. So we're a small brand, so there's only so much we can do as far as actual physical impact on products. But what I really like to see Brave gentleman as, is a proof of concept and a symbol for what fashion can be. I really try to use high-tech materials that are sustainable and that are free of animals. And I really want to use Brave Gentleman as a platform to showcase what's possible, but also to show that, yes, you, you can have high-quality, durable, long-lasting, beautiful, luxurious. You know, you can tick all those things off of your checkbook and it can still be a vegan product that meets stringent environmental and ethical standards. And I think that for the future, I really would love for Brave Gentleman to be a source of inspiration and um, even even a consulting body for larger brands. I think that what, what I've done in my research with producing my collections has shown that we can have fine men's suiting and it can be made from bamboo or it can be made from recycled cotton or it can be made from recycled polyester and we can have really nice dress shoes that don't require you know the the raising of livestock and the clearing of forests and the tanning industry this is all stuff that can be extrapolated to larger scale as temporary solutions. but i believe that the real solutions are just around the bend it's, we're going to see the next industrial revolution happen, I think, within the next five to 10 years in regards to biofabrication and growing all of our materials in laboratory settings without the need for land use and intensive water use and intensive feedstocks like, like crops and, uh, and without the need to confine or trap or have to raise and kill billions of animals.
0: And in terms of using these, like, different practices, so would you say, like, your own brand, are you guys using any innovative practices with your textiles or manufacturing? Or is there, like, any particular processes that you're particularly proud of implementing?
1: Absolutely. I think with everything we do, we try as best we can to utilize new innovative materials and innovative ways of just running a business, I pretty much do everything myself, so that's you know that's one thing i don't really have a staff i I have some part timers that help, but I've learned using technology how to really minimize overhead costs. I would love to be able to employ lots and lots of people, but I think that with technology, what I can do is really focus um, that those those energies and those resources on making sure factory workers are paid fairly, on making sure I'm investing in high-tech, recycled, sustainable, um, and vegan materials that that aren't cheap. But then at the end, I'm able to offer uh, a retail price that isn't as high. And I think that there is this stereotype that ethical and sustainable and vegan fashion is going to be expensive. And to some extent, that's true. And to some extent, that's an unveiling of a larger economic problem. Um, but I think with what the innovations that I use, I'm able to maintain a relatively, a relatively um, considerate price. But the, re- the term relative is you know, very, very, very loose because most people can't afford to pay over $100 for a pair of shoes. So, so this, is, this is a larger economic problem about a need for scale and a need for um, access.
0: And so how do we start to bring these prices down? How do we make sustainability affordable for everyone?
1: I think the ability to make sustainability affordable is one of the biggest obstacles that we have right now. But it is possible. It's not, it's not an obstacle that we can't overcome. One thing is we have to get to scale with new technology when new technology hits the scene, it's often very expensive and very limited, and that high price is directly tied to how limited that that thing is so an entire economic process that's based on scarcity or based on exclusivity that doesn't really that doesn't really mesh with um, a, a long term sustainability strategy. We have to get Sustainable technologies scaled up and funded, and that's anything from uh, larger recycling facilities for something like cotton, or um, laboratories that can really grow things like mycelium leather, or um, or lab-grown protein fibers like keratin or lab-grown silk, and to really take those things and get them to a point where the price per yard, or you know, or per spool, or per pound is cheaper than the conventional materials. That's achievable, but it requires investment, it requires lobbying, it requires laws, and these are a lot of things that activists don't typically like to do. So we need to focus on legislation, we need to work with lawmakers, we need to think big and strategically within the industry, and we need the industry to cooperate. Fashion is so cutthroat and so competitive and so secretive, and that's a culture change that needs to happen. We need to be cooperative with these larger goals that will benefit all of us.
0: That was definitely very well said. So it definitely is something that needs to be focused on in the future. But with that said, do you think are there any companies or brands that you right now emulate or that you think are setting a high standard for themselves and others?
1: I think there's a lot of brands that have good ideas and that are trying to get things accomplished. Unfortunately, I think most of the brands with the best ideas, are very small brands that are underfunded and that are constantly in danger of going out of business or have recently just gone out of business. And that is a devastating loss that I don't think the fashion industry at large has yet realized. And hopefully this is something that we can mitigate and that we can address. But we are losing really brilliant thinkers and leaders and innovators because the current fashion culture is about recycling, not the right things, not materials, recycling talent and recycling power and keeping power to a very small number of people. Like any corporate structure, the power is concentrated to a very few number of people. And I hate to say it, but those few people are not the people who should be leading in this conversation. And that's something that I can't yell loud enough, you know, from the mountaintops. We need to be giving the power and the attention and the microphone to the people who are often the most disempowered and the, and the least represented in the fashion system.
0: I mean, that's, that's horrible to hear. Um, I mean, with the people who are in the current power structure, is there any advice you would give to them or would you give to other businesses that are trying to be more sustainable and accountable? Is there anything we can really salvage from the current infrastructure?
1: Absolutely. I'm much more of a change from the inside than tear it down kind of person. And I definitely think there's a time and a place for a tear it all down kind of mentality. But I think that with the current fashion structures and the current power structures, what people need to do in these positions is stop stop looking across the stop looking across the runway to the other front row for your next talent, you know? Start looking out of the box. Start looking at who are the entrepreneurs, who are the change makers and the visionaries who don't have access to that power, and what happens when you grant them access to that power? What happens when you really take somebody who's an emerging leader and visionary and pioneer in sustainability and justice and ethics and put them at the helm of a major brand? I think then we would see some really fast paced change that is scalable, and that is quite breathtaking.
0: And so what kind of advice would you give to smaller businesses, especially because it is hard and costly to operate a sustainable business?
1: Yeah, for smaller businesses, it's really challenging. And I I experienced this myself. I think it's it's a juggling act, and it's an act of treading water. And we're so reliant upon other people's money to make these visions become real. And that puts us at a real disadvantage. I think that for smaller brands, my advice having, having gone through growing a small brand over the last 10 years is don't spread yourself too thin. Don't spread into too many product categories too quickly. I would say find one thing that you do really well and do that thing and redo it and do it again and just push it until, because, For example, if you spread yourself into too many product categories, you multiply exponentially your overhead costs and you spread your attention among too many things. And if you're an entrepreneur, often that attention and that energy is already at its limit. So. There's a tendency for people to get bored with when they have a fashion brand if they're only doing one thing, and they want to expand into other product categories. And I experienced that myself, and I had to learn very expensive lessons that my perception of what other people might be getting bored with is very, very skewed. Um, instead, find out what you can do really well, and that you can grow, and focus just on that alone, and that ends up having much more power and much more um, capacity to, to get scaled and to, uh, and to grow more quickly.
0: That's really great advice. And so what would you like people to know more about in, in regards to circularity in your own work?
1: I think with my own work, it's twofold. My, my passion is what's happening to animals in the fashion industry. And I want people to really look at this as an issue of justice. It's not just an issue of seeing animals as part of the environment. Animals are individuals who don't want to die. And our understanding of non-human animals has not kept up with the science. Science continues to reveal how much we underestimate animals' capacity to have an inner and an outer life and to value their own lives. They don't want to die. They want to live just as much as you or I want to live. And we can't look at animal materials and fashion as anything but an issue of justice when we actually consider the science behind animal sentience. So I really can't stress enough that I think animals don't belong in the fashion system as units of production, as property, as resources. And that shift has to come if we plan to live in a compassionate and just world. And that ties into larger issues of justice and larger issues of structural change that needs to happen. So that's one thing I really want people to take to heart is don't write off a concern for animals as something that is frivolous or silly or emotional. This is about justice and it's about science and it has far-reaching and large consequences. And the animal industries, especially in fashion, have a history of driving so many species to extinction in uh, in pursuit of things as simple as a fashion trend. And all of this is outlined in my book, Fashion Animals, if if people want to know more and really dive deep. Um, The other thing I think people should know is this isn't, When we talk about circularity in fashion, when we talk about sustainability or ethics in fashion, it's not about a pursuit of perfection. It's not a religion. It's not about being the best or being perfect or pure. It's not about personal purity. It's about being effective. And often, what's effective is not the same thing as what is the most pure or the most perfect. Effective thinking is strategic thinking, and strategic thinking means compromise. And compromise means compromising your perfection and your purity. And so we have to be careful not to fall into getting so caught up in little things that occupy our time that we fail to see the larger strategies and the larger picture.
0: And so you've been working on all of this for quite a while. And so is there anything that you have in the future, any exciting plans that you would like to share?
1: Absolutely. I'm going to be launching a research project soon um, under the name circumfauna. And circumfauna is a term that I coined uh, in my book just to describe the category of animal use in fashion, animal use for materials. So we could refer to that as circumfauna. And so I am launching this circumfauna project as a research oriented project. As sort of a clearinghouse and and a center a centerpiece for looking at this issue, Um, so that will be launching hopefully in the next couple of months. So look out for that.
0: That's so cool! I I can't wait to see. And so in regards of like looking towards the future, is where do you see your brand? Where do you see your ventures being in ten to fifteen years? And where do you see the fashion industry being in ten to fifteen years in regards to sustainability?
1: Well, I think what we're going through right now with the pandemic. Um, has is is drastically teaching us a lot of lessons, and they are painful lessons and they are heartbreaking lessons and there are lessons that we many of us don 't want to hear one of those big lessons that was just announced um, a, a few days ago from um, I believe it was uh, the United nations um, they released a uh, i think it was a video just about how Uh, pandemics coming um, coming from industries like the wool, the meat, the dairy, the leather industry, these livestock industries, they are the top driver of loss of biodiversity. And they are also vectors for zoonotic diseases. So our reliance on and our fondness for animal materials and fashion and animal foods in the food industry, this is a vector for pandemics. When we think of biodiversity as a protection from pandemics, we have to look to the livestock industries as the biggest driver of biodiversity loss. And that means that we have to confront some of our most deep-seated things that we like and that we enjoy as a culture, animal foods, animal materials. How can we continue to do do this and try to avoid the next pandemic when they're all coming from zoonotic diseases like like, you know, Cow, like H1N1, like bird flu, like swine, swine flu, like COVID. These are all coming from uh, zoonotic diseases. So um, in the future, I think we're really going to have to make big shifts and uncomfortable shifts. Um, and for my own brand and my own personal life, I really hope in the next 15 years that Brave Gentleman is able to is able to really leverage the research and the material, uh, material sourcing and the network that we've built and have that affect the larger fashion industry and have that influence, hopefully, with open arms from the larger fashion industry. I hope they welcome this information and they value this information and I hope they pay for this information. We need to be paid for this work. Activists should not be working for free.
0: Absolutely. I mean, that's a sentiment that I also carry as a young activist who feels like too often my voice and the things that I'm doing are being exploited for free. Yes. So (laughs) I guess as a final wrap up, um, since we have been talking, I mean, it's so hard to have these conversations without talking about COVID-19 just because, you know, we're living in the middle of this giant pandemic. And so when we're we're really taking this into account, so post-COVID-19, when the industry starts to get back up on its feet, What do you think are the most important circular approaches that brands should implement?
1: Well, like I said before, I think we need to very critically look at biodiversity as a protection from pandemics. We can't just look at putting a Band-Aid on something like a pandemic because there's a root cause for things like this. There's a reason that this happened. And if we don't look at that and if we don't address that and if we don't extrapolate that information to our industries then we're we're going to it's going to happen again and it's going to keep on happening until we until either humanity is reduced to p- practically nothing or I- until people decide to really take those those large scale changes that need to happen and begin implementing them as soon as possible and it isn't impossible to do it just requires sometimes getting over our own egos and our own desires and our own pleasure and switching to something that might be difficult or uncomfortable at first, but becomes um, superior in the long run. So uh, the other things that I hope happen, obviously I want a more just fashion industry. I want workers to be protected. I want um, people to be paid fairly. I want brands to pay for the orders that they're placing and that they can't just drop them in the middle of a pandemic and say, you know, screw you to all the factory workers who now are out of jobs and, and can't afford to buy food or uh, to maintain any semblance of, uh, of a life. So there, we need transparency and accountability. And those are only things that can come with people paying attention to what's happening. And that's why we need legislation. That's why we, we need lawmakers to see fashion as something serious. Lawmakers shy away from fashion because they see it as a mark of frivolity, as a mark of almost silliness. And we have to push this idea that fashion isn't silly. It's not just about looking good and finding a good deal. It's about a global economic structure and it affects everything and everyone. And we can't just brush it off because if we do, we underestimate it and it flies in under the radar, and we have our next global, global disaster.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much for all of this advice. I'm sure it's something that people will really, really find useful, and I do hope that other leaders in the fashion industry comments into account. And so thank you again for taking the time to speak with me.
1: Thank you. I really appreciate it, and keep on on doing what you're doing. I appreciate it. Of course. Thank you so much.